I love surprises. I really, really do. I love surprising others, and I love being surprised. So I was overjoyed when Gloria surprised me at the top of the Burj Khalifa and told me she was pregnant. And I was thrilled when she had her first contraction at the bottom of the Burj Khalifa on Sunday outside the Dubai Mall. Because it meant that we were on the verge of getting to meet our little one for the first time. So you can imagine how excited I was when we got there to the delivery room. This was going to be the surprise of a lifetime. We would get to see our baby and finally find out, is it a boy or is it a girl? See, we were equally excited about either one, but see, for the first two children, we found out the gender ahead of time. You see, Gloria and I are quite different in this regard. While I love surprises, Gloria likes to have things planned out. She likes to have things organized. So at a strategic point in time when Gloria was a bit weak at the moment, I had her commit to promise that we would wait this time around, and she agreed. And I'll forever remember there just waiting in the delivery room, so excited to see how our lives were going to change. And then when the baby came out and Gloria grabbed the baby and it seemed like it flew through the air as it was quite slippery and seemed to do a somersault on the way to Gloria's chest. You know, babies are quite slippery when they're born, right? They're not quite like the movies when they're all clean and about six weeks old when they come out. (laughs) So Gloria was lifting up this slippery baby. You know what I was doing? I was trying to find out, is it a boy? Is it a girl? I'm looking. It was quite a surprise. It looked like a boy. And I was quite nervous. I kept saying, is it a boy? Is it a boy? Is it a boy? I I think it's a boy. And I looked to my side to the doctor and I said, is it a boy? She just laughed at me because we, you know, we both saw that it was a boy. It was pretty clear. The evidence demand the verdict. It was there. It was wonderful. I love surprises. I love them. It was so exciting to find out that way. But I bet I'm not the only one who likes surprises. I bet some of you like them. And as I studied the passage this week, I was reminded that we see surprises throughout our Bible. Although God himself is never surprised, not only does God know the future, God preordained all things that come to pass. He planned the future. But we see that our God is full of surprises. So far in the book of Mark, we've seen several surprising things about Jesus, haven't we? We've seen that Jesus has reached out and actually touched an unclean leper. We see that Jesus not only healed the paralytic lifted down from the roof, but Jesus forgave his sins. We see that Jesus is dining with tax collectors and sinners, the outsiders of society. Jesus was friends with them. And then we saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus gathers 12 ministry assistants These were fishermen. These were zealots. These were tax collectors. These were ordinary men. Yet God is going to use them to change the world. Well, today we see another surprise as we look at the kingdom of God. We'll see that the kingdom of God is nothing like we think it is. If you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 4, this morning we're going to continue our look at this great uh, gospel You've probably noticed over the last few months that there have been, there's been a lot of talk about the kingdom of God in Mark. Specifically, that this kingdom is near. But we haven't had a clear description yet of what the kingdom looks like until our passage this morning. So let's read together about what the kingdom of God is like, beginning in verse 21 and going down to verse 34. 
He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. And again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So what is the kingdom of God? Is it a country or a piece of real estate somewhere that God has special authority over? Is it the church? Is it here and now, or is it something that we're waiting for in the future? Is it the whole earth? Is everything the kingdom of God? Now, we do know that God is sovereign over all creation, but what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God, as Greg Gilbert defines it, is simply God's redemptive rule over his people. His redemptive rule over his people. See, when we usually think of a kingdom, we usually think of a particular plot of land with geographic borders, like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But in the Bible, a kingdom doesn't usually refer to land and could actually be better described as a kingship. It has a king who rules his people wherever they live. So the kingdom of God is a kingdom that Jesus rules Christians, whether they live in Argentina or Alaska or Africa. But there's more to it than just a simple definition. Did you notice that in our passage, Jesus doesn't give us a nice, neat definition of the kingdom? He actually gives us several different images to describe what the kingdom is like. Flannery O'Connor, a great fiction writer, was once asked about one of her stories. If she could put her, the meaning of the story in one sentence for them. And she said, if I could put the meaning in a sentence, I wouldn't have written the story. See, what she's saying is, I can't give you the fullness of meaning in a sentence. I mean, the full impact on the imagination and the heart, the full impact can't be put in a, def- in a definition. And what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom is so full and so important and so wonderful that I need to describe it in a series of parables, in a series of stories. And so it is in these stories this morning that we'll see four surprises about the kingdom of God. Four surprises. First, we see the kingdom's concealment. Second, we see the kingdom's growth. Third, we see the kingdom's lifestyle. And fourth, we see the kingdom's glory. And all four are surprising to us. Well, first we see the kingdom's concealment. 
first surprise. Do you remember from last week what the purpose of parables are? They are stories, a means of instruction for followers of Christ. And for outsiders, they were a warning to repent and come to Jesus. They were like fishing. They're a, a hook. There's a hook hidden in the bait. And the hook is the word of God, personified in Jesus. These parables can't be understood apart from the one who tells them. They're not simply good advice. They're good news of Jesus Christ. And they were a way to mark out those who were on the inside and those who were on the outside. Kind of of like a door into the kingdom of God. Those who followed Jesus inside the door could understand these parables. They were clear to them. We see that at the end of the passage that the disciples understood what God was saying, but those on the outside had their hearts hardened. So in essence, the parables were a warning to the hard-hearted. Wake up! Jesus would say, wake up and come to me and you'll understand. For Jesus is the light. You see that in verse 21, that Jesus is the light of the world. And it, this light isn't just any light. It's the Savior of the world. The light who was to come, we see described throughout the pages of the Old Testament. We see it in 2 Samuel 22, in Psalm 119, in Psalm 132. That Jesus is the lamp of God who has come to bring light and revelation. But those on the outside couldn't see it. And yet these inauspicious beginnings were serving God's purposes. Now if we were the king, this certainly wouldn't be the way we'd start a kingdom. We'd want everybody to know that we were the king, wouldn't we? We'd shout out from the rooftop, I'm the king, I'm the king, bow down to me. You tell all your friends. And yet here we have the baffling activity of Jesus. It's like he's playing a game of cosmic hide-and-seek. So why is Jesus waiting? Why is the kingdom concealed? Well, the second part of verse 22 tells us that there is a time when things that are secret will come out because there is a perfect time for them to be revealed and brought to light. Now, the reason Jesus is hidden is so that he can be manifested at the proper time. Concealment intends disclosure. If you have something of value, something wonderful, if you have a truth that needs to be known, there's a time and a place for the disclosure of those things. And that's what our Lord is saying, that he has a sovereign plan. And for some reason, according to his purposes, the concealing now will magnify his glory later. The time is just not quite yet. I think of this when Gloria at the top of the Burge let me know that she was pregnant. She had concealed the secret for four whole days, which was a miracle, but she did it. She concealed it, but she knew we were going to the top of the Burge. And so she made a card, put a picture of the ultrasound, gave it to our two little girls who gave it to me right as we sat looking over Sheikh Zayed Highway. You can imagine that that surprise was, was amazing. There was a purpose in her concealment and it magnified the excitement of the surprise. What Jesus is telling us is the time is just not quite yet, but it's coming. The arrival will not be accidental. No, it's intentional according to divine providence. Because it would be silly to get a beautiful lamp and to hide it forever. Why get the lamp? It would be of no use to you. So the kingdom is surprisingly concealed for God's glory. But the second surprise in the passage is the kingdom's growth. We're surprised about how the kingdom grows. Now when Jesus says in Mark 1 that the kingdom of God is near, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom has begun with the incarnation and ensuing death of Christ. 
And now he's going to tell us how the kingdom grows in verses 27 through 29. He says the kingdom grows like a farmer sows seed. As we saw last week, the seed is an expression for the word of God or the gospel. I was reminded reading this passage of a vegetable garden that we planted last year at the back of the Redeemer Villa. Gloria and the girls cleared off a little area in the back corner. They dropped some seeds, some cucumbers, some uh, carrots, some green beans. And Gloria told the girls that one day there'd be all kinds of vegetables there, that we'd get to maybe even eat them and enjoy them together. Well, the next morning when the girls went out to play, you know, the first thing they did is they ran to the back corner to check out the garden. They were excited to see their harvest of vegetables. And you know what they saw? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, to them, the garden had failed. The garden didn't work. I wonder if that's how we are with the kingdom of God. We have this little children gardening mentality. We want the process of the gospel to be an event, to happen now. And so we struggle with this in our ministry. We wonder, is this planting actually doing anything? Is our sharing of the gospel here in the UAE really making any kind of difference? No one seems to be accepting my message. What's going on? And so often we try to manipulate the results. Maybe we dig up the soil, put new soil. Maybe we add a little water. But see, what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that he wants us to be clear on our place in the process of kingdom growth. He wants us to know that the growing of the kingdom is a miracle that is completely and totally and utterly dependent on God himself. He wants parents to know that they don't have the power to produce belief in their kids. He wants us to know that we can't force our brother or sister or friend into the kingdom of God. He wants us to know that our smooth arguments will never win our coworker to Christ. But see, there's this tendency for us to try to take God's place in salvation. It's a tendency for us as a church staff. If we go week by week and we don't see any fruit, then what do we do? Do we bring in a more famous guest speaker who will preach the gospel more powerfully than us? Do we get cooler music? Not that it's possible to be any cooler than Glenn Jones. <laughs> or do we spend thousands of dirhams to make fancy videos, have laser light shows, and buy a smoke machine? Some churches have smoke machines. As a pastor, I could come out through these back doors into smoke and start <laughs> preaching with power. <laughs> do we do that? See, we'll start doing these things to try and produce fruit if we forget our place as Christians. Our place is to sow a seed and to pray. There's nothing else to do. There's a story that one night as Charles Spurgeon's father was preaching, the great preacher Spurgeon himself walked in. And upon acknowledging his famous son's attendance there in the church, his father remarks, he may be a greater preacher than I, but he can't preach a greater gospel. See, what his dad is saying is you can't improve on the gospel. It's the greatest news in the world, whoever preaches it. We can't adjust it. No, what Christ is saying is that he will build his church upon his word. Do you see that in verse 27? It says, the farmer sleeps and rises and has no idea how the seed grows. Even the farmer has no idea. How does it work? He doesn't know. It happens by 
itself. The word in the original language is automate. It's where we get the word automatic. It just happens. Once you've planted the seed, you're done. That's all. Our goal is to sow seeds, to proclaim the gospel. Because Jesus says the entrance in the kingdom in verses 23 and 24 comes by hearing. He says it three times. Now why some people respond and others don't is not for us to know. We don't carry the harvest on our shoulders. And we persevere even when we see no fruit. Even if we see no fruit here in the UAE, we press on. We sow the seed. How are you doing in this this morning? Are you spreading the word of God? Now I often ask this question to assess how I'm doing in evangelism. I ask myself, if everyone at Redeemer were sharing the gospel in the same way I am, how would we as a church be doing in evangelism? It's a convicting question. Are you looking for ways to share the good news with others? Are you praying each week that God would give you specific opportunities to share the gospel with specific people? Let's sow the seed and let God change hearts. I love reading biographies of great missionaries who have gone before us. One of my favorites is Adoniram Judson, who was the first church planter sent overseas from the United States. This was the man we named our son after because this is what he did. He gave his life to sowing seeds. He went to Burma, a hostile country to preach the gospel, even after the great William Carey told him not to go because it was too dangerous. But just 12 days after his wedding, he left for what would be 33 years without returning back. He would never see his brother, mother, or father again. He faced torture, illness, deep depression, isolation from family and friends. Two wives died. Numerous children died in Burma. On one occasion, he was dragged from home, put into prison, tortured every day for a year. And his pregnant wife would have to walk four kilometers each day just to plead for his release. And then finally, after a year, they were released. But instead of going home, they stayed and continued to sow the seed and sow the seed. After six years, they saw their first convert. And it would be another 12 years before they saw a movement of any kind. 20 years just faithfully sowing the seed and preaching the gospel. He gave his life to this and died at 61, alone at sea, apart from his family in the Burmese church. Friends, we don't know who will be saved. We don't know who might become a follower of Christ 10 years after you share with them. And what if 20 years from now there is a movement so grand and so amazing here in our country that we could hardly even dream of it today? I mean, imagine if there were churches on every corner, and not just English-speaking churches, but churches among the unreached people groups of this land. Imagine if these new believers in these new churches were trained as pastors, and we were able to send them out throughout our whole region, and even back home, to make an impact for the gospel. Sow the seed, and let's watch what God does. When he chooses to do so, the seed that you sow will become like a grenade. And at the proper time, God will pull the pin of the grenade and he will break the heart of a sinner and draw him or her to himself. That's the power of the gospel. 
That's the confidence that we have in his word. That's what drove Adoniram Judson to give his life to sowing the word. There are now at least 3,700 Baptist churches alone in Burma with around 2 million people. The fruit of Judson's seed being sown over 200 years. Sow the seed. Let's sow it. Well, there's a third surprise. The third surprise is the kingdom's lifestyle. The kingdom's lifestyle. It's completely upside down. It's radically different than anything we would expect with a great king on the throne. The currency of the kingdom is surprising. Look again at verses 24 and 25. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. If you come into this kingdom, your life operates on a totally different principle. What Jesus is saying is the more you give, the more you have. The way to fullness is to actually give yourself away. Giving and emptying yourself is the way to be full. And this is profound. Because the way to go up It's actually to go down. Tim Keller has said that the way to influence and power is not to seek it, but to serve. The way to be rich is to give it away. The way to be happy is not to try to be happy, but to make others happy. The way to lead is to submit. The way to magnificence and character is to be humble. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself in serving others. The way to get guidance is to follow God, not yourself. This kingdom is turned the world totally upside down. It's the complete opposite, the complete reverse. Right? Because this world says it's wealth, comfort, peace, happiness. That's what we attain to. The world says, hold on to your wealth, but the kingdom says it's the other way around. When you read the Sermon on the Mount and read the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the blank and blank. It just keeps going through these different things. What's been pointed out that the Beatitudes don't say, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after blessedness. No, you never get joy by trying to obtain joy or trying to get happiness. No, the Bible says that the surprising life of this kingdom is that you aim at God and you get God and joy. If you aim at joy, you get neither. When you aim at God, you get God and blessedness. But when you aim at blessedness, you lose both. This is a a tension here in our country because the UAE is full of people who are aiming at happiness, people who are are aiming at joy, people who are aiming at comfort. But when you look around, you see that there are so many people finding ruin and decay and debt and depression Friends, don't try to find your joy in a personal kingdom here on earth. We like to remind you often at Redeemer that this is never your best life now. It's not as good as it gets, so don't, face, don't set your face on your life as if this is it. Don't live for today. Don't seek security. Don't spend all your time planning and preparing for your earthly kingdom. But take time to plan for a heavenly kingdom which will not rot, rot and destroyed. And be destroyed. Spend your days in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that the will of God is that you be holy. 
Seek the fruits of the Spirit. Spend time serving others. See, religions, the religions of the world say that the way up is to go up. Perform well and God will take you. But the great news of the gospel is that the way up is down. To admit that you're a sinner. To admit that you're a moral failure and come to him. If you've never embraced this gospel, if you're here today and you've never admitted that you have no hope on your own, I encourage you to trust Christ, the one who has come down for you. The one who, who has taken your sin upon himself, if you would believe. For each one of us has offended a holy God. But in Christ, God has provided a ransom for all those who believe. And if you repent of your sin and believe in Christ, you can come into this kingdom. You can now follow the king of the universe. If you would just take yourself off the throne of your life and put Jesus as your king. I urge you to do that today if you've never done it. This life in the kingdom is upside down and utterly surprising. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Well, the fourth and final surprise is the kingdom's glory. The kingdom's glory. We can't forget that the people of God were waiting for the kingdom. This was not a new idea for them. They see it throughout the Old Testament. We saw Eric read from 2 Samuel today. The passage, the covenant that foretold that this great king would come from David's descendants. That the Israelites, the Israelites would have remembered the great prosperity under Solomon and the great military conquests of that day. And so when they're hearing the words, the kingdom is here, what they're thinking is a physical military kingdom in Jerusalem. And this is the king they've been waiting for, praying for, hoping for, for centuries. And he's finally come on the scene. They're dreaming about being taken out from under Roman rule. So they're ready. I mean, bring it on. I mean, Jesus, if you're the great king of the Old Testament, if you're the king we've been waiting for, conquer Rome, set us free, take over the earth. Bring in the tanks and machine guns. Start blowing the bad guys up. I mean, start being the king of the world. Do something. That's what they would have been thinking as Jesus speaks these parables to them. And yet Jesus says the kingdom is like a seed. If you were starting a kingdom, is this how you would describe it? Is this how you would start it? I mean, shouldn't the kingdom of God be likened to something grand and glorious, to shimmering mountain peaks, crimson sunsets, a lush and breathtaking rainforest, the depth of a grand ocean? Now, what Jesus is telling us here is that the kingdom is not only growing, but it will be glorious. He tells us this in the final parable beginning in verse 30. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Now, our mustard seed wasn't just any seed. It was the smallest of seeds. You could hardly see it. It was microscopic. And there's nothing else that farmers can plant that starts out so small that becomes so large. A seed the size of a grain of sand would grow to a mustard bush five, six, seven meters high, several meters in diameter. And what our Lord is saying to them is obvious. There's no explanation at the end of this parable. He's telling them these small beginnings don't give you any indication about where this whole thing is going. I mean, how many multiples of the size of this little seed would be contained in a vast mustard bush? This kingdom is going to be massive. It's going to be huge in comparison to the beginning. Because the beginning was indeed a humble one. I mean, think back for a moment at how this king came into the world. There were no thunderbolts or laser light extravaganzas. 
This great warrior king everyone was expecting came as a helpless baby. I've been reminded each hour of every night this week just how helpless babies are. You know, as soon as they're born, the cord needs to be cut. They need to be washed and nursed and swaddled. They need to be carried and rocked. They need to have a crib and blankets and nappies and wipes. You know, we clothe the baby and we stay with the baby all throughout the day. Baby is completely helpless and totally dependent on us. As I picked up Judson as he was crying in his bed last night and I stared into his eyes, I was in awe that Joseph once held his son Jesus just like that. I was in awe that Joseph would pick up Jesus from his bed and rock him to sleep and feed him and keep him from crying. It's amazing how humbling the beginnings of the kingdom were. And then in his life, Jesus lived as a carpenter. No wealth, no home. His family didn't even believe he was the Savior. And then he died on a tree. And his short life of ministry ended with a humiliating death. And what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom started like that little mustard seed. But it's going to turn into a mustard tree one day. This tree is clearly an allusion to visions of great trees in the Old Testament. We see this in Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 14 of a a big tree in the middle of the earth that is visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves are beautiful and abundant and the beasts of the field are fed by it. Jesus is looking back to that with the mustard seed and what he's telling us with this mustard tree that's going to grow is that the consummation of this kingdom, which will happen when Christ comes back, will be nothing like we've ever seen before. It may have started small, but it will end glorious. We have tasted a little bit of this already in the past 2,000 years since Christ came. We've seen the gospel go out throughout the earth. We get a little taste of this on Friday mornings. We get a little taste of it as I preach to you and as I look around and I see that the gospel has gone forth to Europe and to Africa and over to North and South America. It's gone the other direction throughout all of Asia, into Australia, to Burma. It's even gone out to places like Tasmania and Papua New Guinea. It's gone to the outermost parts of the earth. What started with Jesus and his band of 12 ordinary disciples has grown. But even what we see today is nothing compared to what it will be. Isaiah 65 says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Friends, this is the great hope for us as Christians. The thing for which we long for, the thing to which we look for strength and encouragement is the day when our King will come. He will part the skies and return to establish His glorious kingdom finally and forever. And in that glorious moment, everything in this world will be set right. Justice will finally be done. War will end. Fighting will cease. Evil will be overthrown. And his righteousness will be established once and for all. It's a day when we will be free from sin. It's a day when we will be free from disease. Cancer will be dead. AIDS and HIV will be done away with. Ravaging nerve diseases that burn bodies will be gone away forever. We have new bodies. And never again will tears burn our eyes at the graveside. Death 
will die and never again will we long to be home. Oh, that this king would come quickly. As a church, let's be committed to pray that this kingdom would come. And until then, let's be sowing the seed. Let's cast the gospel far and wide here in the UAE. Let's tell everyone about Jesus because he could come back at any moment. This surprising kingdom may have be may be concealed for a time. It may have started out small, but God himself is the one who will grow it. And he is working to produce a great harvest like nothing we've ever seen before. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the kingdom of God that has begun in Christ. That though he came as a baby, there will be a day when Christ comes back and we will see him in all his glory. And Father, we thank you for the cross that has saved us. And so we pray this morning that your kingdom come. Oh, Father, would your kingdom come and your will be done so that everyone might know your name. So we ask that you would help us sow the word of God here in the UAE. We pray, Father, that you would help us to sow your word here until your sovereign work in this place is done. We pray these things in the faithful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.